Greetings to you and thanks for joining me for another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. The Alabama legislature, by an overwhelming vote, just passed a pro-life bill that affirms the personhood of the unborn child and presents a challenge to the Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision. It was signed by Governor Kay Ivey. You'll be hearing analysis from Eric Johnston of the Alabama Pro-Life Coalition. Next, Jeremy Miller is an actor and chef who is in the cast of Growing Pains. Brandon Lane Phillips is a pediatric cardiologist who, as a young man, visited the set of the show as part of a wish due to his health challenges. The two men reunited a few years ago in order to fulfill God's purpose. You'll learn more about their shared story. Then it's Lori Shoemaker who relates part of her story involving adoption. A discovered child, a lost opportunity, then an expression of God's faithfulness are all part of the timeline. Find out more ahead. And on this edition of The Intersection, from CityServe, you'll hear from co-founder of Convoy of Hope and former leader of Operation Blessing, Dave Donaldson, who has a heart to see churches equipped to make a powerful statement of Christ's love in their communities. May is National Foster Care Month, and some comments are coming up from John DeGarmo of the Foster Care Institute, which is based in Georgia. He spotlights the opportunities for churches and their members to be involved in caring for children who are in the foster care system, which is in desperate need of foster parents. Finally, we shift into the history of the modern-day nation of Israel, which recently celebrated its 71st anniversary. Craig Von Busek of Inspiration Ministries presents a look at how circumstances converged for this occasion, including the work of President Harry Truman. This is the intersection of production of The Meeting House, and I'm Bob Crittenden. The president of the Alabama Pro-Life Coalition, Eric Johnston, after the passage of Alabama's Human Life Protection Act, HB 314, which criminalizes the practice of abortion in the state, shared additional commentary on the bill, which was signed by Governor Kay Ivey. In our conversation, he addressed some of the misinterpretations of the new law. Here now is Eric Johnston. The rape and incest exception had been put on the bill by the Senate Judiciary Committee, and that was stripped off um, in the uh, afternoon session last Thursday uh, with the understanding that then the Senate would recess, reconvene on Tuesday, and take up the bill and discuss everything. And that's exactly what happened. They came back uh, mid-afternoon on Tuesday and began the debate on the bill, and it went on for uh, about four or five hours. It was quite long. Uh, In the end, uh, the bill was passed without the amendment, but there was a lot of discussion during those several hours about different amendments, and some some of them were rather time-wasting, ridiculous kinds of things that were kind of embarrassing if people, you know, were listening to the Alabama legislature, they get the idea that they didn't know what they were talking about. But the rape and incest exception that wanted to be put on there was a very serious one. And if it had gone on to the bill, it would have killed the bill. And the reason for that is uh, this bill addresses the personhood of the unborn child. It follows Amendment 2, which voters approved last November in Alabama, which says unborn children are entitled to the protection of law. It does not say unborn children conceived by agreement uh, or consent. It says unborn children, which includes all of them. And, of course, uh, when a child is conceived, it does not matter whether it's consensual or by accident or rape, incest, or even artificial insemination. It's still a child, and it's still 
protected. And so the problem with putting that amendment on is it would have effectively killed the bill. It would have been difficult, if not impossible, to argue to the federal courts that this bill would have to go through the process with uh, how how you can dif- differentiate between you know how, you know the, the status of children on how they're conceived. So that was the big rub. That was the big problem. The way the child was conceived, that really, when it comes right down to it, doesn't affect whether or not that child is a person, right? That's correct. It's still a person regardless of how it's conceived. And, and you know, that was the real nut of the issue. And uh, I think the governor understood that. And we are grateful to the governor for signing the bill. You know, initially, some were concerned because she said she wanted to see the bill the way it was written and hear the full debate. But that would only be normal. I mean, if the bill had come to her with the exception in it, you know, she may have vetoed it. I don't know. We may have asked for an executive amendment to take it back off. Those were other, you know, parliamentary options that we could have had. Uh, but, I, I, you know, I, I felt fairly certain that she would sign the bill if it came to her in a clean form uh, and that uh, she did it rather quickly. She's always, you know, been pro-life and, and been consistent in her comments on that, and she demonstrated it faithfully in signing the bill. And I really, before I forget it, I need to, you know, mention the the yeoman's work and the uh, the, the uh, intensity of the effort by Terry Collins, representative who introduced the bill and got it passed in the House, and Clyde Chambliss, who then took the bill and got it through the Senate, and uh, Rich Wingo in the House that worked hand in glove with everybody on this from the very beginning to get it done. Uh, Senator Greg Reed in the Senate, when we had this rape and incest problem, he really stepped up and helped us with that. Those are very fine pro-life legislators who understand the sanctity of life and all the dimensions of what we were dealing with, and we're very grateful to them for their efforts. And that was conversation material with Eric Johnston of the Alabama Pro-Life Coalition. Next up on this edition of the Intersection Podcast, it's pediatric cardiologist Brandon Lane Phillips and actor Jeremy Miller, formerly of the TV sitcom Growing Pains. They have co-authored a book called When I Wished Upon a Star, From Broken Homes to Mended Hearts. They discussed how they met on the set of the show and how they reunited at a critical moment in one of their lives. Here now are Brandon Lane Phillips and Jeremy Miller. I was starting to struggle with the fact that I had a congenital heart defect and and what that meant. And also, my family situation wasn't what I wanted it to be. My parents had separated early on in my childhood, and I was wanting to spend more time with my dad, and that just didn't work out. And I remember before being granted a wish, praying one night, God, if you love me, show me that you love me. And... I ended up um, getting a wish granted by Starlight, ended up going to the Groin King set. And, you know, one of the first things Jeremy asked me when we met is, you know, where do you go to church? And that kind of set off this little bell that maybe I was there for, for more than just the wish. But Growing Pains was my idea of what an ideal family should look like. And Jeremy was closest to my age on, on the show, and that's how I ended up meeting him. And Jeremy, Brandon had some difficult family situations. You also really were hoping for a family situation that was, well, maybe more like the Seaver household. Yeah, the ironic thing is, is while Brandon, you know, yearned for the 
perfect family life that he saw in growing pains. The truth is, so was I. I was I was yearning for that myself. My my mother and father split up when I was two and a half. I had a wonderful relationship with my dad, but uh, stepfather came into the picture around 11 years old, and it wasn't a good situation. There's a lot of abuse, mental, physical, and other, and uh, it was it was a real hard time in my life. I had suffered a nervous breakdown around a year before that, um, just kind of from the stress of the show and all the things I was dealing with. Um, it was just not a real strong time in my life. I was hurting a lot. This man did a lot of damage to my family. How did you get back together at a very critical time in Jeremy's life? So Jeremy and I communicated by letters um, for a few years after I met him. And we kind of stopped communicating about the time that the show went off of the air. Um, but I used to write Jeremy some very personal letters about what was going on in, in my childhood. Um, so we shared a lot during those initial two years. And as we kind of matured and went off to college and different things, we had lost contact. Um, but there's just many coincidences in my life. And, and one of the most special was the fact that during my senior year of medical school at Tulane in New Orleans, um, the Growing Pains cast reunited to film their second reunion movie, and they filmed it in New Orleans about two miles from where I was living, Wow! Um, which gave me the opportunity to reconnect with them. That time in, in New Orleans was, um, I was right on the precipice of the downfall of my addiction. Uh, I was deep into it at that point, but I hadn't really gone off the edge yet. I managed to hold it together pretty well for the first two to three weeks. Um, but by week four, I was showing up on set with a giant alcoholic Slurpee that they sell on every corner in New Orleans. And uh, I managed to only have that throughout the day to kind of keep me going. But I was drinking on set and it just kind of grew from there. I was drinking 24-7 and it was just that really downhill period of a couple of years where everything really started to fall apart. Talk about the whole process of how you really were able to make a turnaround in your life. My mother actually reached out to people that she knew cared about me the most, and that was the cast as well as Brandon, and just basically wrote them a letter begging them to help in any way that they could. She didn't know what to do, and she was hoping somehow they could save my life. She had found this program, um, and at the time it was very cutting edge and very new, and it had started in Australia, and it uses a medication to help curb or block the cravings for alcohol. And they actually implant the medication into the fatty tissue, um, usually in the abdomen, and the medicine dissolves over a period of time and helps you basically helps block those mental cravings and physical cravings that you have. I was not in a position to be able to make a large investment like that. Brandon, as well as Alan, both reached out to the CEO of this company and basically vouched for me. And I was told many times that the, the deciding factor for him to put me through the program was Brandon vouching for me was having this doctor call and say how much I was worth saving. And that meant a lot to me to have someone come to bat for me like that. Jeremy Miller and Brandon Lane Phillips here on The Intersection. You can find out more at the book's website, com. 
Next on this edition of The Intersection, it's author and speaker Lori Shoemaker. She's written a book entitled Surrendered Hearts, an adoption story of love, loss, and learning to trust. In our conversation recently, she shared elements of her story involving the selection of a child to adopt, a lost opportunity, and expressions of her surrender and God's faithfulness. From that conversation, this is Lori Shoemaker. I would get monthly emails from our adoption agency, and they would have special needs children in in there advocating in these emails for these children to try and find families for them. And each month I would look at the at the pictures and I would pray for these children, and my heart would be filled with compassion, but that's where it ended. It was with that compassion. But one morning I opened up one of those emails and there was this picture of this little girl, and it was a Holy Spirit moment. I felt heat from the tip of my head to the very tips of my toes. And I, the tears just started pouring. And I was convicted in that moment that this was the little girl that I had dreamed of my whole life. And that here she was, that I had this calling on my life. I had envisioned this child and here was this child. And, um, but the, she came in a special needs email. And my husband and I had made some decisions saying, well, you know, we had some limits and boundaries around the special needs of, of really what we felt we were called or what we felt we were equipped to handle. Little did we know God had a whole other plan there, which is another story of surrender. But this little girl was in my heart immediately as a mother. The love that just poured through my heart was just profound. And our whole family, the, my our younger boys fell in love with this little girl, and my husband did too immediately. He had the same reaction. We sent all the paperwork in. We started the process, and we were waiting for a phone call from the um, from our caseworker um, that was going to report to us that the meeting had happened in Bulgaria with the Ministry of Justice, and our paperwork had been signed, and I was just waiting for that phone call to say, yes, it's been approved, and here's the date that you'll travel to meet your daughter. Mm. But the phone call that I received wasn't that. It was saying that something had happened and this little girl had been adopted by a family in Italy. And the grief just set in. And I can say that as a mom who has also suffered a miscarriage, that that grief is very similar. It's If you haven't gone through the adoption process, you don't quite understand how your heart can be the mother's heart is already you have that feeling of a mother but you do it's 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 the same thing when god whether god is growing that child within you or god is growing that child halfway around the world if he calls that child yours you grieve and you love immediately so it wasn't that i still didn't want to this little girl to be mine but when i laid it down and said okay god she's yours and i trust that you are in the story and you're going to make beauty from ashes. I don't know what the beauty is going to look like. I can't wrap my mind around that, but I'm trusting you. I'm choosing to trust you. Then I found that peace and I was able to see the the beauty in being able to pray for her, the beauty of my heart being transformed by this love. And then not even a week later, miracles began to happen. And it was a series of people from all over the world that aligned and connected for us to find that this little girl really had not been adopted. And moments Hmm. of the very day that she was about to be placed in a file, 
of the unadoptable, which means that they wouldn't look to her file to try to pursue adoption for her anymore and would kind of just ignore hers and focus on every other child in their, in their system. That that day that all these people from around the world and these messages and these, these, I don't even, you have to read the book to find out all the details. Sure, but, sure. But it, it, yeah, but it, it was just absolutely, there's no chance of calling it coincidence. It was absolutely God's aligning of all these lives and stories together for us to figure this out. And our caseworker to call that day and say, is this little girl available and is her file? Do you have her file? And yes, they did. Oh, wow. And so that started the process of us bringing our little girl home. So the one in the very beginning that I thought was ours, yes, she did end up coming home to us. <laughs> Lori Shoemaker here on The Intersection. Learn more by going to the website, Lori, L-O-R-I, Shoemaker, S-C-H-U-M-A-K-E-R.com. This is the Intersection Podcast, the weekly production of The Meeting House, and you can find out more through the website meetinghouseonline.info. You'll find a link to the media center marked Meeting House On Demand, through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on The Intersection Podcast. You can also find the podcast in that media center. It's also available through iTunes. Plus, through the Meeting House homepage, you'll find links to two blogs. One is The Three, with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room, with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House. You can also follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page, and there is a link to video content. You can find content from the Meeting House program and the Intersection podcast through the Faith Radio app as well. You can find out about downloading the app for your smartphone or tablet by visiting the website faithradio.org. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info, or you can go to the programming section at faithradio.org. Next on this edition of the Intersection Podcast, it's Dave Donaldson, co-founder of CityServe International and co-editor of the book, CityServe, Your Guide to Church-Based Compassion. He shared about the concept of CityServe, helping to equip churches to be more involved in compassionate service to their communities with the love of Christ. From that conversation, this is Dave Donaldson. Well, it started many years ago, the vision when I was invited to speak at a church, and and instead of the pastor introducing me, he resigned. Oh, my. And, and to make matters worse, my sermon topic or title was Never Quit, Never Give Up. And afterwards, uh, we had lunch, and he began to confide that he felt overwhelmed, outgunned, ill-equipped to deal with the complexity and the diversity of needs in his church and community. And, Bob, this is not an isolated case. Uh, too many of our churches are a weekend production, but we are, through CityServe, empowering the local church, even neighborhood churches, smaller developing churches, to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ by leading their communities and bringing healing to brokenness and we focus on 10 areas straight out of Scripture, uh, the hungry, homeless, addicted, jobless, widows, orphans, the exploited, the oppressed, uh, and the prisoner. And for too long, uh, the church is known for what we're against. And so we are equipping, empowering, resourcing churches to make it very clear that we are 
We are for helping single parents manage the challenges of raising children. We're for seeing people delivered by Jesus Christ uh, uh, that are hooked on drugs like opiates. And uh, we're for helping children that are caught in the foster care system find forever families. Sounds like to me this book that you and Mr. Vincent have written is really, as you might say, a uh, not only a training manual, but also teaching some of these basic scriptural principles about, well, living out compassion. So give us an idea about the the overall concept here of this book. The book is what Auntie Anne, the founder of Auntie Anne Pretzels, uh, describes as the chicken soup for the soul. Uh, for compassion. Uh, We just had the book launch with Tommy Barnett, the great pastor evangelist, uh, founder of the Dream Centers, and and he put it this way, this is the encyclopedia uh, for compassion that every leader uh, needs to read and, and, and apply. But as you mentioned, it's 40 different contributors that from government, corporate, uh, pastors, and lay leaders, and so uh, we had uh, over 60 that participated, but we had to pare it down to 40 leading experts in compassion. And as you mentioned, this book focuses on helping leaders become the influencer in their community. I call them for-profit leaders, (laughs) P-R-O-P-H-E-T, and we show show pastors how to become appendextrous, to care for their flocks while at the same time uh, becoming really a spiritual leader in their community and, and embracing their rightful and responsible place and influence. And you and I both know that, that it's like the game of musical chairs. If we do not take that seat of influence, it will be occupied by others. And in many cases, that seat will be occupied by people that do not share our moral biblical values. So in this book, throughout it, we train you how to take that seat of influence, how to adopt these proven models uh, for compassion for churches of any size, any community. Uh, and so, and then how to partner with government and local businesses and how to acquire funds and, and gifts in kind like product that I described earlier. And so 40 different contributors, and we're so delighted that it it includes leaders like the CEO of Habitat for Humanity and executives for World Vision, pastors like Rick Bazette, who said, I buy a book hoping for one good idea. This book has a hundred. And so it's just filled, you know, with these leading experts in compassion. Dave Donaldson here on The Intersection. Learn more through the website cityserve.us. Next up on this edition of The Intersection Podcast, it's John DeGarmo, director of the Foster Care Institute. He shared words of encouragement for churches and their members to be involved in becoming foster parents relative to material in his book, The Church and Foster Care, God's Call to a Growing Epidemic. This conversation took place during the month of May, which is National Foster Care Month. Here now is John DeGarmo. 
I've been foster parenting myself for 17 years. I've had over 60 kids come through my home. I also travel the nation and the globe working with foster parents and adoptive parents and agencies and organizations. And I continue to hear over and over again that so many foster parents do it because they do feel called to do it. And I recognized a few years back, I recognized, you know what? My own kids don't have to go to Mexico or Honduras or Nicaragua. I've done that myself uh, several years. We don't have to go elsewhere to, to locate a mission field. There is a mission field in every single community in our nation, in our own neighborhoods, and sometimes in our own extended family. There are 5 million children in America every year who are victims of domestic violence in their own home. There are 300,000 children who are victims of human trafficking in our nation. There are 500,000 kids in the foster care system who are just looking for someone to say, I I will care for you. I'll help you out. So I recognize that, you know what, while maybe not everybody could be a foster parent or can be a foster parent, everybody can help in some way. And this is the church next great mission field right here in our own communities. We can change the world for these children and their birth parents and foster parents in so many ways. This is what the church is being called to do today. What are you finding to be maybe some of the objections that you hear from people with respect to even considering becoming foster parents? Well, so many people said to me, Dr. John, I couldn't do what you do. It would hurt too much to give those kids back. What if they become too attached? And my response is this, you know, this is how it's supposed to be. That's how it's exactly how it's supposed to be. These children need me as a foster parent to, yes, to give them stability and support. But what they need more than anything else is for me to love them unconditionally, just like God loves us unconditionally with all of our warts and our flaws, to love these kids with all that we have so that when they do reach, when they do leave our home, for whatever reason it is, our hearts break. But that's a gift, I tell those people. I tell them that's a gift because we're giving that child a gift of our heart. We might be, as foster parents, the first person who's ever cried tears over these children. So that's one thing I hear. I also hear people ask me, do you have to be married to be a foster parent? No, you don't. Do you have to have a big house? No. Do you have to have a lot of money? No, you don't. Just have to have a heart to help these children. And if you had to identify maybe one or two of the principal components that you believe that that Christians will need to know with respect to foster care, what would you say? They would need to know this, that children are not bad kids, they're victims. They're looking for someone to say, I will help you, I will care for you, I will love you, and that we as a church can do that. They need to know that this is a mission field in all of our communities, in every single community in our nation. They need to know that by doing just a few simple things, they can change the world for these children. You know, I can't change the world, but for these kids who come to live in my home, hopefully their world is changed by the support and the help and the care and the love I've provided for those kids. And that's what members of the church can do today as well. Well, when you talk about this being a mission opportunity and you have the chance to change the world, as we begin to wrap up, I wanted you to share maybe what you talk about in the book with respect to how a having a foster child or multiple foster children in the home changes them and changes the foster families. Oh, you know, every child that's come through my home 
has made me a better person in some way. I've become a better a better parent, a better husband, spouse, a better um, better member of the community. I've learned so much from these children. Um, and, you know, for the birth parents, their biological family members, we also are able to support them as well. For so many of them, they have never had a positive role model in their own life. So I'm able to to model God's love for them and, and God's commitment and God's act of forgiveness for these birth parents as well. So you can really heal the whole family. You know, Matthew 25, 35 tells us this, for I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was naked, you gave me clothing. To me, that's these children in our neighborhood, these children right where we live. John DeGarmo here on The Intersection. Learn more by going to the website, Dr. or Dr. John DeGarmo Foster Care dot com. Finally, on this edition of The Intersection Podcast, it's Craig Von Busek, digital content editor for Inspiration Ministries and author of the book, I Am Cyrus, Harry S. Truman and the Rebirth of Israel. He shared about some of the material explored in the book dealing with the 1948 modern-day establishing of the nation of Israel. Here now is Craig Von Busek. This was part of the Paris Peace Conference after World War I, where they said, we agree that this is the land of the Jews. The Faisal agreed and Wiseman agreed, and they said, we together will work together to build this area and to help each other. And Faisal said, we welcome our Semitic cousins back with open arms. But he said at the end, only if the British will uphold their promises to us. Sadly, the British did not. The French came in, pushed Faisal off the throne in Syria, the British didn't back Faisal up, and Faisal said, I'm sorry to the Jews, but I no longer can uphold this agreement. So there was that hope of peace from the very beginning of the agreement after World War I, and sadly that fell apart. It's exciting now, though, that we're starting to see the Arabs and the Jews working much more closely together than they really ever have since the rebirth of Israel in 1948. So there are hopeful signs. Obviously, this is fascinating history, and I believe that there is the element of the hand of God in bringing Israel back into the land, the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. I've said that Israel really is a barometer of the fulfillment of, of Bible prophecy in the future. So for for Christians, and obviously that prophetic aspect is, is something that is of great relevance to Christian people. From from the standpoint of of the the Christian perspective on this material, what would you say would be some of the the principal points? Well, the amazing thing, well, I, I think there were two things that for me were fascinating discoveries as I was doing my research. One was that there was what was called the Restorationist movement. And these were Bible-believing Christians that would include the Pilgrims, the Puritans, John Adams, John Quincy Adams, and even Abraham Lincoln. Toward the end of his life, he became a Restorationist. They believed that the Jews needed to be restored to their homeland. And when that took place, that would then usher in the return of the Messiah. Well, that obviously was passed down through evangelical Christianity and other branches of Christianity to the 19th century and the 20th century. And like I said, I see, you had mentioned the hand of God, I see the hand of God putting into these positions of power at these key vital moments 
Bible-believing Christians, David Lloyd George, Arthur Balfour, Winston Churchill, right during World War I, when the British had the power given to them to then give the land to the Jews, these men who were restorationists were put in place. Fast forward then to World War II, there was an advisor under Franklin Roosevelt in the White House. His name was David Niles, and he was an advisor for minority issues. And he was Jewish, and so he had you know, a, a strong understanding of the Jewish community. And FDR would ask him, which rabbis do I absolutely politically need to listen to, and which ones can I ignore? That kind of thing, right? Well, David Niles was kept on as an advisor when Harry Truman became president, and they actually became even closer than uh, Niles was to FDR. And after Israel, after Truman recognized Israel and Israel became a nation, David Niles said, had FDR lived, uh, he would not have recognized the nation of Israel. God put Harry Truman, a Bible-believing Christian, into that place for that time because that was his call. And the reason the book is called I Am Cyrus was that the year after, in 1949, uh, the chief rabbi of Israel, Rabbi Herzog, came to the White House and met with Truman. And Truman said, do you, do you know what I, what I did and how I was involved? And the rabbi said, yes, I know very well. And you are a Cyrus, just like Cyrus of old. Well, Truman stood up, walked around his desk with tears in his eyes and said, do you really believe that? And he said, yes, you were placed in your mother's womb for this purpose. Wow. And so when Truman left the White House in 1952, one of the first places he went to speak was the Jewish seminary in New York City in Manhattan. And his business partner, Eddie Jacobson, was asked to introduce him. And when he introduced him, he said, please welcome President Harry Truman, one of the people involved in the rebirth of Israel. And everybody clapped. And Truman stood up and he turned after the clapping society. He turned back to Eddie Jacobson. And he said, what do you mean one of the people? I am Cyrus. I am oh, Cyrus. Wow. And that's where the book comes from, the name of the book. Craig Von Busek here on The Intersection. Learn more by going to the website, vonbusek, B-U-S-E-C-K, dot com. We're nearing the end of this week's edition of The Intersection Podcast, the weekly production of The Meeting House. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info, or you can go to the programming section at faithradio.org. You can find a link to the Media Center through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on the Intersection podcast. The podcast itself is found in the Media Center, and it's available through iTunes. Two blogs are accessible through that homepage. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. And you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. There's also a link to video content, including recently added content from the 2019 National Religious Broadcasters Convention in California. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info, or you can go to the programming section at faithradio.org. Audio content from the Meeting House can also be found in the Faith Radio app. Learn more about downloading it for your smartphone or tablet by visiting faithradio.org. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.